Good morning, Chelton. My name is Alyssa Endress, and I serve with Chelton Youth. I am the 10th grade girls' small group leader. Um, I also occasionally sing on the worship team, and I'm involved in the Kairos Young Adult Ministry. Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 3, 14 to 30. That's Daniel 3, 14 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord.
Thanks, Alyssa, for such dynamic reading of God's Word. It's good to be with you at church, and the passage that we are diving in today, if I may dive in right away, is perhaps, I would say, one of the most familiar account in the book of Daniel, alongside with the lion's den's account. It's a fiery furnace account, as you have heard it being read out loud. It's familiar and yet so contemporary, if you really think about it, to what is happening in this world right now where we are living in today. Now, actually, I titled today's sermon as The Problems of Christianity. What I meant by that, you will soon see, we are often caricatured and understood a certain way uh, that is quite relevant of what was happening at that time. So as we dive in, I especially the few of you in my mind, for those of you who are really not sure about what this Christian faith is all about, I pray that you consider, you give case for the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. He's the God that we serve as a church, and I pray that you are a little bit open-minded for that. And for those of us who are gathered here, if you feel mm, perhaps constantly misunderstood because of what you believe, or perhaps you feel a little shy (laughs) about publicly representing your faith, perhaps because of all the connotation that the word Christian brings, I, I pray that you will be a little bit more hopeful in your exchange in the public square and the interaction. We have a reasonable faith uh, that we can be so thankful for. And for those of us, another group of people, many of us who are gathered here, perhaps you feel like actually you are walking through the fiery furnace today. Suffering can look very grand, as if literal fiery furnace, to very little bit that you trivialize, oh, this is not suffering, but God, even this little thing, It's really hard for me. I pray that the nearness of God will be so real to you that you really experience his presence right now where you are in your seat today. Even in your fiery furnace, our God is with you. You can take heart in that. So as we dive in about three things that we are going to talk about today. Uh, First, the problem of exclusivity. Second, problem of suffering. Third, problem of deliverance. Let's elaborate that one by one. Problem of exclusivity, problem of suffering, and problem of deliverance. First, a problem of exclusivity. Go back all the way, if you have your Bible open, to Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Let me give you a full context of what is happening. If you look at verse 1, what is happening here? King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So here, King Nebuchadnezzar built this great statue, and then following verse, like 4 through 6, tells us that he made all his government officials as well as all the tribes and nations who have gathered in Babylon to bow at the statue. 
So first question we must ask in order to understand is, what in the world is this statue that Nebuchadnezzar have set it up? Now, if you were here last week, perhaps you remember the PowerPoint image that Pastor B put it up there in chapter 2, which was the image from his dream. There's a head statue that made with gold, which represented Nebuchadnezzar. There's silver and iron, and then there's a feet of clay, the statue there. Based on this, some people interpret this statue as the replica of King Nebuchadnezzar. But this time only he made everything with gold. He did not perhaps like that it became clay on the road. Yet read what's happening in verse 12, 14, and 18. When you look at verse 12, here king's official came to Nebuchadnezzar and says, Hey, king, these friends don't worship. This is what it says. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set it up. So verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar goes to that three friends and says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set it up? And 18, now these three friends answer back to king. What accusation has come upon them? The three friends answer back to king by saying, We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set it up. Now, there are a couple of things that become abundantly clear. First of all, while there is no clear indication that this is King Nebuchadnezzar, what is very clear is that, do you see how many times word set up was repeated? Verse 12, you have set it up. Verse 14, I have set it up. Verse 18, I have set it up. In fact, in chapter 3, word set up was used nine times in this chapter alone. Verse 1, verse 2, three times in verse 2, 5, 7, 12, 14, 18. See what Nebuchadnezzar has done here. He's setting on something to boast his glory and his kingdom. The image does not, might not represent Nebuchadnezzar himself, but the context tells us it represents his gods. More specifically, represent the gods and the spirit and the power of the Babylonian kingdom. Come and bow before this God the Babylonian kingdom worships. Throughout the chapter, it becomes abundantly clear that Nebuchadnezzar took enormous pride in the kingdom of Babylon. This is the greatest nation on planet Earth. Come and worship and embrace all the religion in this nation. If you look at one chapter further in chapter 4, 30, look at the pride that Nebuchadnezzar takes in the Babylonian kingdom. It says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So Nebuchadnezzar, what is he demanding to his Daniel's friends? Worship this Babylonian kingdom that all the gods it represents. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't quite come out to say, don't worship your God. But he's saying, hey, don't only worship your God, but worship my gods too. Embrace this plurality that Babylonian kingdom represents. There are many tribes and nations. People have gathered here, including your own Israelite exile. 
He embraced all these religions and gods that our Babylonian kingdom worships. Embrace this pluralism and the nationalism. This is your king. When you carefully think about that, church, isn't that quite contemporary to what we are going through? We live in very pluralistic society with so many religions in the world, and we are constantly told that all gods are equal gods. Don't be a bigot, Christians. Why do you think Jesus is the only way, truth, and life? All these religions are equal, and all roads lead to God. So don't be such a bigot. But when you carefully think about that, isn't also saying that all religions are equal, and don't be so exclusive Christians because all religions are equal, is it also quite exclusive claim? Who are you to say that all religions actually are equal? Now, perhaps you have heard this illustration before, church. Perhaps famous, many people who embrace this religious plurality that all religions are equal sometimes use this elephant illustration. Um, that we all are blinded men, basically, and you're approaching an elephant. So one person who approaches the elephant trunk says, because they're blinded, say, this is not an elephant, it's a snake. Because they all they feel like a snake, like the trunk. And the second person comes up because he's blindfolded. He touches the belly of an elephant and says, what are you talking about? This is not a snake. This is a wall. It's massive. And then third person comes up. He's also blindfolded and touches the tree, I mean, the leg of an elephant and says, no, 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 it's not a snake. It's not a wall. It's a tree. It's a tree trunk. It's the tree. What are you talking about? So those people say that embrace religious plurality. It all leads to God say that we are all blinded. Only when you gather all the information together, you see the big picture. Therefore, all religions are equally blinded. Therefore, you should embrace all religion as an equal God. And worship, it's okay to worship other religions. All roads lead to heaven. The problem of this illustration is that the church, the one who says that what this one who says, no, 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 you all are blinded. This is actually an elephant. There's a sense of arrogance. You assume that you are the only one who is unblinded. Because you are the only one who sees this is an elephant. Because you are the one who sees the whole picture, hey, it's not just snake, it's not just wall, it's not just a tree trunk that you feel like. You all should come together. When you think about that, I am the only one without the blind. I see the whole truth, and y'all are blind. There's also very exclusive, conclusive claim in itself. Likewise, Chilton, sometimes religious pluralism looks very tolerant on the outside. But when you press in just a little bit, it has also the note of intolerance. I'm the one that sees the whole truth. So you should, a Christian, never think Jesus is the only way to life. You should embrace all different religions. Perhaps you think it's a very inclusive and tolerant approach. But when you press in just a little bit, there is a note of intolerance. In fact, that's what is happening in this passage. Nebuchadnezzar said, embrace my gosh too. But as soon as Daniel's three friends refused that, what happened? He becomes extremely intolerant king. So how dare you? He throws these th- three friends into the fiery furnace. So what does this world constantly pressure us, Christians, church? It constantly pressures us either assimilate 
or separate, meaning assimilate, embrace all the other gods. Don't you dare to say Christian Jesus is the only way to life. Either assimilate into us what, what we are saying as a cultural narrative or separate, privatize your faith. Don't be such a bigotry. Don't say Jesus is the way. Don't you dare to even say that. Just keep your mind to yourself alone. Please, would you mind your own business? Privatize them. So constantly we are pressured to go either way, to assimilate into the way of the world or just privatizing our faith. But what does Daniel's three friends do? They neither assimilate, they refuse to bow down, yet they refuse to take a private matter as if, oh yeah, I'm just going to do whatever we want. No, they stand in their own conviction. Isn't that what we have been talking as a church through this series, Chalton? That neither assimilate but nor separate, but embrace your heavenly identity that influences the way you live your life today in this world where the Lord has called you. Now, back in, I think it was 2019, uh, when I was candidating to be one of your pastors here at Shelton, your search committee asked billions of questions to me. <laughs> and out of billions of questions that they asked, this was the very question they asked. I specifically remember because I had to write it out. Question number 24. <laughs> This is your search committee asked. What is the role of the church in a post-Christian, pluralistic, and agnostic, and secular society? I know, what a question they throw at me. <laughs> this is how I answer that. I, I, I read, while some might perceive that this is quite difficult time to be Christian in a pluralistic and agnostic society, I believe that we live in very spiritual coma, uh, spiritual time quote. In other words, we, we all are seeking, whether whatever the spiritual means, millennials and Gen Z are seeking spirituality, and yet they are seeking spirituality and truth through relativism. Meaning whatever I feel inside is the truth. Whatever I feel is the objective truth. And yet the exclusive and countercultural aspect of the gospel makes Christianity actually a very attractive option for those who are seeking objective truth. More than churches trying to be relevant in the world, we need to go back to the foundation of our real, historical, radical, and scandalous message of the gospel. The role of the church, therefore, should continually be to make followers of Jesus so that they can be in the world, but not of the world. Being a countercultural Christian does not mean a separatist model of Christianity. Yet, in an age of relativism, objective truths must be proclaimed faithfully without disengaging ourselves from surrounding culture. That's how I answer the child, and I still stand by that. See, church, wherever you go, if you ever feel misunderstood, you may not be not doing all the wrong things. Because the reason why you're misunderstood left and right, because you neither refuse to assimilate nor separate. Sometimes when you resolve all the tension, that's when we fall in heresy. <laughs> You're either assimilating too far or separating too far. We all have a tendency to run one way or the another way. 
So Chelton, today, if you are constantly like, God, I don't know how to act in my circumstances. Sometimes it costs me. I don't even know why people constantly misunderstanding me. I'm sometimes ashamed and afraid to represent myself. Hang in there. Our Lord is with you even in that tension. Let me continue to elaborate on what I mean. Second thing we learn here, the problem of suffering. So as a result of their conviction, Chelton, they are in the end thrown into the fiery furnace. Verse 18, it says, Hey, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set it up. They refused to buy into that. So Nebuchadnezzar gets really mad, and they put three friends in that fiery furnace, seven times hotter than usual. That even king's official got burnt while trying to put those uh, friends into a fiery furnace. Now, first question we might ask in this case is, where in the world is Daniel? <laughs> Three friends are being put in the fiery furnace, but somehow he's not there. Some people said Daniel caved in. Daniel actually, in the end, he bowed at the golden image. Uh, that is not the case in the end. He neither assimilated nor separated. In the end, he refused to privatize his faith. He still prays while people can see him. So in chapter 6, he gets thrown into the lion's den. So he did not even cave in. So it is unlikely, the answer is no, that he didn't cave in. Some people say, oh, maybe kings gave exception to king because he was winsome and he was high, official, mighty. No, that's not the case either because did you remember reading verse 2 through verse 4? There was a king commanded all his officials to bow down and told officials to command all the people, tribe and nation, to bow and worship at this image. So Daniel was no exception. So most likely, Daniel was traveling for work. It's an odd way to say that. But if you look at 248, it says, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel ruler over the entire province of Babylon and in charge of all its wise men. So most, most likely, he just wasn't there. Having said all that, while entire nations caved in, Okay, I'll embrace these gods. I'll embrace the pride of Babylonian kingdom. Three friends refused to worship at this image, and as a result, they are thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, Chelton, this sermon is not meant to defend your Christian faith with intellectual weapon. Sometimes you can use intellectual argument as a weapon to wield. That's not the point of this sermon is, yes, you can argue, you can do all that. I'm not discouraging you. But look what Daniel's three friends say. Verse 17, they said, hey, we have no need to answer this. They weren't combative. They weren't like, I'm going to raise a coup about this. This is not fair. Chilton, the one of the most winsome, gracious, and convincing way to defend your Christian faith is this. Defend your faith through suffering, not through conquering or domineering. Let me say it one more time. Defend your faith through suffering, not through conquering or domineering. What I mean by that is this. How much willing to suffer will you, are you willing to suffer for what you believe in? Really? It's so easy to believe when it benefits you. What about you get constantly misunderstood by your friends? What about when you get... You get let go of promotion because of your faith conviction, because you give so much to time in the other work that the Lord has called you. How much are you willing to suffer for the glory of God? 
for what you believe in. I know this is true because that's how Christianity spread it, spread throughout all the history, through the blood of martyrs, through the mundane, ordinary obedience in a smallest matter. It's kind of hard to take that in, right? So, Jin, you're basically saying, I'll do something if it's like no pain, no gain. Got it. I suffer so that I can gain some glory. But you're saying all pain but no gain? I don't like this faith. You just say suffer? Daniel's three friends are put in fiery furnace. That's how they defend their faith? I don't want to live like that. Where is our hope in all this? You might ask. Look verse 24 and 25. Where is our hope in this? The king Nebuchadnezzar was surprised also, even in the fiery furnace. Hey, wait a second. Did he not cast three men bound into the fire? And the king's official said, yeah, oh king, that's what we did. So he answered and said, but I see four men bound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the force is like the sun, like a son of the gods. Who is the fourth person here? This king's officials partially got it. Uh, they say it's a son of the gods. No, it wasn't a son of the gods. It was the son of God appearing in the midst of them. Theologically, scholars call this fancy term theophany. It means physical manifestation of God, especially often in the Old Testament. If Jesus appeared in the New Testament as incarnate in the fleshly form of a human, here he appeared pre-incarnate among them as a visible manifestation. So we ask question, what is our hope in our suffering when we feel like we are misunderstood in all your relationship, in all your daily life? What is hope in our suffering? Shelton, take heart. God himself walks with us in our suffering. I take great comfort in that. By the way, this is unique to Christian faith, church. What I mean by that, when you think about it, if God is really who he claimed to be, can he just deliver them out? Absolutely. He did not need to jump into the fire furnace. He could have sat up in his heavenly throne and said, water come down, fire's done. Or perhaps God could have willed in a way that Daniel's three friends were never put in the fiery furnace. But somehow, somehow, God puts them, yields them, into a fiery furnace, and he says, hey, I'm not rejoicing over your suffering, but I'm going to walk through your agony. I'm going to walk through. I'm going to be present in the midst of the fire. That's unique to our faith. Other prophets of God might suffer. Buddha might suffer. Muhammad might suffer. But their God, Allah, do not suffer. But our Christian God, Lord and Savior, saved us through his suffering at the cross. And he is weeping over you in your suffering today. Children, when you feel like fiery furnace, when you see absolutely no hope, know that our God is right there with you walking through the fiery furnace. That comforts my heart. That how do I know this is the case? That Jesus groans and moans with us and for us in our suffering? Look no further than incarnate Jesus this time. When you look at John chapter 11, Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus is dead. And Mary and Martha tells Jesus, where were you, Jesus? If you are here earlier, Lazarus, my brother, wouldn't be dead. And what's astonishing to me about that passage, what happened? 
Jesus fully knew he was about to raise Lazarus from death. But what does he do? Jesus wept. He's weeping over the suffering and the brokenness of this world. Why would he weep if he knows that end is going to be good? He's weeping over your suffering and your agony. He's identifying himself with that. And then he tells Martha, John chapter eleven forty. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then Jesus raised Lazarus from death. Shelton, our hope is that in our suffering, our Lord and Savior, Jesus walks with you, and through your suffering, you will see the glory of God. Through your suffering, you will see the suffering God who suffered for you and who is suffering with you today. He's not happy about your suffering. Don't get that. He's weeping over, groaning over all your agonies. So church, in your relationship, that is really difficult. Somehow you feel like, oh, but my suffering isn't as grand as Daniel's three friends' suffering. But in your relationship, that you are trying to love others as well as you could because you know Jesus commands us to love well, live with peace at all costs if possible. Hang in there. Don't lose your heart in relationship. In your fight for hope for some of you, some of you perhaps all you feel today is like, I got nothing left today. I tried this, but all I feel is a fiery furnace left and right wherever I go. Remember, for Christian, it's always too soon to quit church. Always hoping, always believing. Do not resign from hoping. Why can I say that? Because our God is with you in your fire furnace. As you faithfully live out your faith in the middle of conflict, difficult relationships, difficult workplace, caring for loved ones, in dysfunctioning family dynamics, in your failing health, know that our God is right there with you today. So, Chelton, do not lose heart. Our Lord suffered with Daniel's three friends. The glory of God is with you and shown to you in your suffering. And guess what, church? You are going to be okay. You will. That's the privilege we have as Christians. So take heart whatever walks of life you are going through today. Third, lastly, the problem of uh, deliverance. Now, another major problem people often have with Christianity is about inconsistency of deliverance. Like here, perhaps the reason why we love Daniel's account, what happened in verse 27, chapter 3? In the end, not even their hair or clothes, none of them were burnt. They came out completely fine. God comes through, delivers them. And then even Nebuchadnezzar say, hey, worship your God. That's okay to be exclusive. <laughs> wow, you didn't worship this God, but your God, they worshiped in verse 28. It's amazing even Nebuchadnezzar burst into praise and awe. It's just such a triumph account that we love this passage because it's victorious. But what are you going to do in the passage that is not so victorious? Do you remember another New Testament account when John the Baptist who faithfully proclaimed the name of Jesus? Does God deliver them? Nope. He gets beheaded mercilessly. I mean, if you read that plot, it's absolutely actually pretty gory because he was faithfully proclaiming Jesus and Herod's birthday comes about and he asked his daughter, what do you want? 
And Herod's daughter says, hey, actually, I want the head of John the Baptist. They bring out the head in a platter. What a, what a merciless, brutal lunatic account. Where is deliverance in that? Jesus himself says, there's no other greater man than John the Baptist. And he dies like that? Is that the God you want to believe in? People say. I'll tell you this. Children, this may not be the best news you like to hear, but in the end, earthly deliverance is not guaranteed nor promised. Can I say that? I don't know. Some of you may get delivered from your sickness. Some of you might not make it. Some of you, after the conflict you're walking through, your relationship will be ever more strong than before. Some of you, even if you tried your best, the conflict will always be thorn in your flesh. Some of you, God might miraculously heal you or not. Some of you, God might give you news of promotion. Some of you might not make it. Yet what we are promised, how do you reckon that? How where is hope in all that, Chelton? Chelton here, pre-incarnate Jesus walked through penultimate burning fiery furnace. And God rescues them. He comes through all three men are delivered. They came come out unsketched. But guess what? When God six hundred years this time, incarnate Son of God comes to this earth. He lives the life, and when he goes to the cross of Jesus Christ, when the ultimate fiery furnace was before him, God the Father does not deliver Jesus Christ the Son. He was walking through the ultimate fiery furnace. He was abandoned and forsaken. He jumped into the burning pool so that when we feel like we are walking through a fiery furnace, we can still hope God in life and death, I'll still hope in you because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. I know your love is a real deal. The one who came to take away the sins of me and the world is my hope. Late pastor Tim Keller once said, God can always rescue you from death, but he will always, if you're a believer, rescue you through death. Because Jesus endured the ultimate fiery furnace today, children. Because Daniel's three friends trust in the God of Israel, not only in their life, but also even in their death, potentially, very likely be. Because they trust in him in that moment, they were spiritually fireproofed, even before they were physically fireproofed. So for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, it feels like what you're walking through is the ultimate fire furnace. You're like, Jin, but you don't know. I can't even sleep at night because this agony is so terrible. Will you take heart? Jesus has taken ultimate fire furnace. Jesus has taken the cost of your sin, self-absorption, agony, pride, so that even in your life, sometimes you feel like all I feel is a fiery furnace you know that our God is right there walking alongside with you. He's not a God who just saved you and then says, good luck. Our spirit of God groans for you and with you in your each step of life. So, Shelton, you have reason to hope today. Yes, in this life, you might feel like you're constantly defeated, constantly feel like misunderstood. Hang in there. You have this reasonable hope because of what our Lord and Jesus Christ endured. 
And Charlton, when you feel like you're constantly pressured in one way or the another way, will you neither assimilate nor separate, but stand on your ground, being informed by your heavenly identity? If you just don't know where to begin today, look what Jesus Christ has took for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who still, I don't get this faith thing, Jen. Who is this Jesus? I just don't get it. Will you hold on with us? If you just don't know where to look today, that you don't even know where to look to Jesus Christ, then look to those who are walking God. Look at the direction that they are gazing upon. And look the same direction. And I pray that, that one day, the God who suffered for you and with you will take your heart, take residence in your heart. You trust him that God, in life and death, I hope in you and you alone. That hope is available for all of us who trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take heart, church. It's going to be okay. Let's pray together. God, we see our suffering God here. Lord, you did not abandon us in our fiery furnace. Perhaps some of us are walking through the fiery furnace today. Whatever that looks like, in their faithful serving of giving of themselves to others. Sometimes it's hard, it's costly to serve others. And, you, and we feel like, do anyone see me in our agony, in our giving of ourselves, in our suffering? God, help us to know that you do. You suffered for us and with us in our agony. And, oh, Lord, we confess that even in our difficult sorrow, conflict, suffering, Oh, Lord, you still reign over all things. We will be okay because you have promised us. So today, God, help us in our unbelief. Help us in our wavering. Help us in our tears, knowing that, oh, Lord, we will be okay. Jesus, you have redeemed us from the ultimate fiery furnace, and one day we'll be with you. So until faith becomes a sight, sustain us. Help us to live worshipfully each step of our lives. God, we trust you and we thank you in your precious name. We pray, amen.